Is Biden's student loan program on the ropes? Why are teenage girls depressed? And did racism and sexism end Lori Lightfoot's political career? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD. Michael Brandon Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is the Bonson Group. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Charlie, you have been writing and thinking seemingly about almost nothing else except for these uh, oral arguments we had in the Supreme Court over the student loan program and the fallout and the various commentary about it. Were you heartened by the direction of the arguments? I was heartened by much of the direction of the arguments, which confirmed my pre-existing suspicion that the worst possible thing that can happen to the Biden administration in this case, and that deserves to happen to the Biden administration in this case, is for its claims to be evaluated on the merits. The moment the merits are reached, the Biden administration's argument falls apart. We've seen this in Texas. We've seen this in the Fifth Circuit. We've seen this in the Eighth Circuit. We've seen this, frankly, in the analysis of anyone who has properly and earnestly read the OLC memo. The part of this that worries me, as before, is that it is possible, given the way that this was structured, and deliberately so, that the Supreme Court will not reach the merits because it will conclude that the plaintiffs lack standing. I don't know quite what to make of the oral arguments in evaluating which is the most likely. I think there are probably going to be five judges who think that there is standing in the case that will therefore evaluate the statutory question and conclude, quite obviously, that the executive branch lacks power. But there could not be. The three Democratic-appointed justices seemed skeptical of standing. Amy Coney Barrett seemed skeptical of standing. None of the others did, but you never know. All arguments don't tell us the whole story. I must confess to being very worried about the prospect of this being upheld on standing grounds, because if it is, it will essentially signal the ratification of a large hole in the U.S. Constitution that is going to be exploited by not just this administration, but the next one and the next one and the next one, Democrat and Republican. Any time that the executive branch cannot get Congress to do what it wants, uh, but it can find a way of using an old law to achieve an end that does not have an obvious or specific or non-diffuse victim. And I think that will be a catastrophe for a system of separation of powers that is already under the cosh. So, Charlie, uh, who remind us who is seeking standing here uh, what's the their case that they have standing, and why is standing itself an important uh, matter? Why doesn't everyone just 
get to make whatever case they want. Well, uh, you're asking the wrong person on standing. I'm not opposed to the concept of standing per se. I understand that there is a need to ensure that the person who brings a given case does have some connection to it, has in some way been harmed to it. But I am not, unlike many conservatives, a hawk on standing. I do not wish to create or sustain a standing doctrine that narrows as much as possible those who can bring a case before the Supreme Court or any other court. I think that the much bigger issue in our society at the moment is rampant executive abuse of congressional prerogatives. The first approach that I always take when looking at Supreme Court questions is whether or not the judges have upheld the original public meaning of the constitutional text and the text's plain meaning of statutory text. Standing doesn't really fall under either of those rubrics. Standing is, a, by definition, a court-determined, practical, pragmatic uh, doctrine. I mean, the reason that the courts would have a narrow-standing approach or a broad-standing approach is workload. Once you've established that you have in any given case a party that has been injured whether or not that party meets the threshold is a practical question right it's not there's no originalist take on standing so i i'm on the dovish side toward this because uh, i want the courts to hear cases where possible and i think there is a, a strong role for the supreme court to superintend executive uh overreach. Um, In terms of the specific arguments here, there are actually two cases that the Supreme Court considered at the same time. The first one came out of Missouri, and this had to do with an organization that was created by the state of Missouri called Mohila. Mohila is a servicer of student loans. Uh, As I say, it was created by Missouri. And as a result of Joe Biden's executive order, Mohila is going to have its funding cut by up to 40%, which affects the state of Missouri, because operating revenues, uh, anything above operating revenues that is sent to Mohila supports student financial aid in Missouri. So obviously, there is a clear link. Also, if Mohila runs out of money, then it's going to be subsidized by the state. So the state claims that it has standing in that case on that basis. The second case the Supreme Court looked at uh, had to do with two individuals, Myra Brown and Alexander Taylor. Essentially, this is a claim that relates to the Administrative Procedures Act. The Biden administration did not go through the usual channels when it issued this executive order. It just did it. And uh, Myra Brown and Alexander Taylor argue that that deprived them of their chance to have some input on the executive order. Uh, Myra Brown 
has her loans under a commercial lender and as such is not affected by this. And Alexander Taylor is eligible for only half of the maximum amount of relief that the Biden plan would give. And so they argue that they have standing because the Biden administration's decision to skip the usual uh, comment period has deprived them of the chance to get involved and thereby to point out uh, that they have been excluded. I think that that second case is weaker than the first. I think the first is uh, absolutely legitimate. And uh, I think on balance, the court is likely to grant uh, the standing claims brought by Missouri, move to the merits and shut down the order. So MBD, basically the argument in favor of the legality of this program just amounts to it's a good program that's going to help people. So it'd be really mean and nasty for nine unelected people wearing black robes to strike it down. Yeah, I mean, it's almost even worse than that. It's almost the the reverse of the standing argument, right? It's, it's hey, who's who was hurt, right? Like, who was hurt by this? And I think um, uh, I think it would be supremely deleterious to our law making going forward and to the executive branch if this is allowed to stand because you will just have the executive branch you know constant you'll just have an army of lawyers who specialize in figuring out how to create laws that don't harm anyone that can claim standing right like that's it's it's a wormhole being opened in in the constitution um and nothing but mischief can pass through it so um i really hope the justices go beyond the standing argument and go after the 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 true matter here which is that the executive branch simply does not have this authority uh, at all. Um, I, I mean, I can't imagine what else would come down the line on immigration or any number of other issues um, if you if you pass this, right? I mean, why couldn't you craft um, executive amnesties, not just saying, oh, we won't enforce the law, but we're we're effectively changing the status and no one was hurt by it, right? Like, can an average citizen sue for the dilution of um, the meaning of citizenship? I mean, anyway, um, so I'm, I'm basically with Charlie on, on the matter. Maddie? Yeah, so, I mean, granted, I don't know as much about this or follow it as closely as Charlie, but I, I'm kind of optimistic that the standing doctrine is relatively flexible. So it seems probable that the court would decide that at least one of the two students or at least one of the six states do in fact have standing. As Michael says, it's obviously uh, in the interest um, that that this is, of, of those pushing student loan forgiveness, this is in their interest that we get bogged down in this conversation instead of the more glaring conversation about authority. Um, and it just it's very clear that in Biden versus Nebraska, the administration has not proven uh, that the 
borrowers have been adversely affected by the pandemic. And of course, the, the language in the HEROES Act that they're appealing to is, yes, it's vague, but they really don't meet the standard provided by the Act. So um, it says, waiver, modify um, student loans in the context of a national emergency. Okay, but uh, I think it was Justice Roberts who uh, quoted Scalia, who, who said, you know, modified in our view, means moderate change. And and the example he gave was saying, you know, you could say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility, but but you can really only say that because of understatement and and sarcasm and, and things like that. So I think, yeah, you know, I was struck struck by on that that quote, Maddie is, is Scalia could be incredibly eloquent, like put it in anthology, yes. good about. The word modify. Right, no, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really, really great stuff and so so perfectly illustrates the point. Um, so yeah, that, that's the conversation that they, they want us to not be having, but it, it, it's the one that I think really on the merits is very clear what the court should do and hopefully what the court will do. So MBD, segue to X question to you. Will the court strike down Biden's student loan forgiveness program? Yes or no? Um. I think they will. I, I think I think there's enough sane justices on the on the court now that you can get five of them to do it. Maddie, I think they will. Charlie, yeah, I think it will. I think the standing challenge in the Missouri case will prevail. And then once it reaches the merits, obviously the Biden administration's argument will fall. I'm going to make it disturbingly unanimous. I think, yes, it will strike down the program. You know, the the standing thing is a close call. You might lose Barrett on that. Uh, You're not going to get universal assent on the major questions doctrine. But even if you're not into the major questions doctrine, this is such an obvious distortion of the underlying statute that's uh, supposed to justify it, I don't think you're going <clears> to <throat> get um, five justices to to swallow it. So I mean, yes, as well with that. Let's pause and hear from our sponsor this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom to the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day, led by our own colleague and friend, David Bonson. The Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. So Maddie, there's been a lot of discussion recently about this distressing phenomenon of a a rise of 
depression and anxiety among teenagers, especially teenage girls. There's been a robust debate about uh, what the causes of this might be. You know, some uh, progressives have pointed to, well, just, you know, it's climate change or anxiety about uh, Donald Trump. But the studies show this began, trend began around 20 12, when we began to see the, you know, the real rise of uh, iPhones and, uh, and social media. And uh, there's a guy whose last name, I'm not going to say it right, Michael. What is it? Richard Hanina? Hannah? Hannah? Hanania, who uh, wrote a, a Substack piece. You know, I, I'm not into moral panics. So I was skeptical of this argument all along. But look, look at these studies. It really points to social media being the cause of it. What do you make of it? Yeah, so as you noted, the, these are trends that have been developing for a, at least a decade, if if not longer. And I think you could break it down, the, the main driving forces behind it, I think, could be broken down into four main categories. So first, as you mentioned, is definitely the internet. And uh, I think it was, I, I can't remember the year this book came out, but um, Jean Twenge wrote this book, iGen, where she was talking about the generation of kids that grew up as uh, digital natives they've always had access to the internet they've always had iPhones or iPads or at least aware of those things and they spend a lot of time online and so the way that they are socialized and the way they interact with other people um, is all very much online and we can see obvious ways in which this is harmful um, certainly I think this helps explain why it's mostly girls given that Girls are much more interested in in sort of getting that affirmation for the way they look, and that's you know Instagram and all the rest of it is, is basically a life comparison site um, or a, a body comparison site, perhaps. Uh, so you can see how that that would be very very harmful. Um, then I think that the second thing to note is uh, parenting and um, changes in sort of family structure, but but also just parenting style. And this is something Jonathan Haidt wrote about with the, the coddling of the American mind, talking about how the, the basic uh, principles of, you know, teaching your children to be resilient and uh, not be self-obsessed uh, is, we've kind of reversed those somehow. We've ended up teaching children to think pathologically, think that the world is this safe place where they can expect not to have their feelings hurt and and it's very shocking when when this does happen because they're not prepared for it or or even just things like you know the perception and maybe it's correct in some cases that the world is more dangerous so children are not given that necessary sort of freedom to go and make mistakes or or kind of like even like physically like just play in a backyard and fall over there's a kind of cotton wool uh, thing going on and that's that's damaging for the the development of children and, and helping them to become well-adjusted adults so there's that then there's um uh identity politics uh which we've obviously discussed a lot on this podcast and i've written a lot about and just you know a, a, a good principle for life on, on how to be happy is just don't be totally self-obsessed think about other people think develop meaningful relationships with other people and they don't have to be romantic relationships you can start with your family friends your community uh think about other people and think about what you can do for them and don't just obsess all the time about what people think of you and you know yourself uh that's that's basically a very unpopular uh piece of advice nowadays people want to do the precise opposite they want affirmation they want to talk about themselves and their identity and 
all the rest of it. And then the, the final thing, I think, and again, explains why it's mostly girls who are, who are miserable, is this absolutely depraved, broken down sexual culture um, in which girls are just, you know, just sold so short. They're, they're persuaded to trade their intimacy for nothing, really, just after a very, very fleeting uh, validation, which is ultimately unfulfilling and exposes them to all sorts of uh, emotional and physical risks. Uh, and they are not um, valued, and, and I think that that especially hits girls really, really hard. And it was interesting, in one of the reports, uh, it might have been the CDC one, um, it, there was quite high reports of sexual violence. Uh, teenage girls were reporting quite high levels of sexual violence. Now, I'm I'm sort of cautious about, about interpreting that at face value. I think it was something like, like 18% of teenage girls were saying that they'd uh, experienced sexual violence and, and 14% were saying that they'd um, had forced sex, which, I, I mean, it was just rape. I'm, I'm sceptical of that, and we saw that in the 90s with the rape panic. But I think what it is saying is it's saying that, that girls are having very negative experiences. Uh, they, they feel used, they feel degraded, whether or not they actually consented at the time, whether or not, like, you know, so, you know, so, somebody had seen something on pornography and tried it out on them versus like, you know, physically assaulting them. Those are slightly different things. But but in any case, it tells you that they're not happy with it. They're not having a good time. And that, I think, is also a big part of it. So, MBD, I'm just struck by, um, you know, there, there is this incredible romanticism about the rise of the Internet and, and social media. And they've, they've brought many uh, benefits. But social media here, like one, one of the downside uh, effects that no one focused on at the time, or at least very few people, is we are harming our teenagers. Uh, we certainly did not appreciate the disruptiveness of social media to the socialization of teenagers and young people. Um, you know, we've and, and, and the way it interacts, I think Maddie is very right to focus on this kind of multi-causal explanation, right? Because you have, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the distance that teenagers used to be able to achieve between their school socialization and their home, right? Their home was more private feeling, a uh, kind of refuge from school, uh, but now with the cell phone, there's just this, they're experiencing the same thing many workers complain about, right? That work now spills out to all hours of the day, all through the weekend because of cell phones and the internet. Well, the intensity of teenage socialization does the same thing. It spills out of the school itself and school events to be a 24 seven thing, right? The, you know, your friends could be talking about you or, or, adding likes to your photo at any time of the day. And I think it just increases the stakes of everyday interaction intolerably high. Um, and I agree with Maddie that the, the, the um, pornography absolutely seems to play a role where the kind of uh, excitement of adolescence was the idea of like heading into um you know, sexual maturity and hoping for romance, you know, going steady, having a, a steady boyfriend or girlfriend, um, 
but now the ubiquity of pornography uh, makes sex look, I think, to a lot of young girls like something that's not intimate and special, but something that is dangerous, degrading, um, uh, potentially violent. Um, and, um, you know, the, it, it amplifies the kind of repulsiveness of like 14 year old boys and 15 year old mm-hmm. boys. Um, yeah. if there are a way to make 14 year old boys worse, we've, we've managed to do it. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think this is a serious problem and it requires creative thinking and, and, uh, new, um, probably new institutions um, that give kids some distance from, from each other. I mean, there's, it's kind of compounding this, the, the, you know, uh, a a problem I already had with the kind of Prussian style of education where we over socialize kids among themselves, where it's like all 13 year olds are together for this many hours a day. And then all 14 year olds, et cetera. Um, Kids actually need a break from that and they need, to be in touch with the real multi-generational world as it exists. Um, and they need more, more escape from the school environment. So Charlie, one uh, answer to this that's being proposed by, by some, including our own Christine Rosen wrote a cover story about it for NR is banning social media for uh, kids under 16. Does that make any sense to you? And does that pass your, uh, uh, your measure of constitutional Muster. Well, I think that the instinct that has led to that being mooted as an idea is sound. I don't think that children have the same rights as adults, nor should they. I think that in practice, it would be almost impossible to implement even if it were a good idea. The nature of the internet is such that the mechanisms that you would need to enforce an age limit would essentially undermine the whole structure of the web in a way that's inconsistent with American political traditions and the way that the internet is constructed in free countries. So I'm skeptical. I want to add something to what Michael and Maddie have said there. I agree with Michael and Maddie about a great deal of this, but I also put a great deal of blame on adults. I think that the negativity that one encounters on the internet is being made worse by a whole bunch of actors within our politics and entertainment and academia who want to and believe they will benefit from reinforcing the depression that spending too much time online can generate. When I was a kid, my parents told me all the time how lucky I was. They told me all the time how great the world was, how exciting my life would be, how fortunate I was to live in this time of plenty and peace, and kindness. And I'm not sure that's what we hear now. I think that if you add together the internet's tendency to yield mobs 
and bullies and panics to a generation of influential adults who spend their time telling people that the system is rigged, that climate change is a crisis that's about to kill you, that we live in a systemically racist country whose founding message was a lie, that things were much better economically in the past. That's a new one that's creeping in. I think that you're going to find a generation of kids who hear the myopic pessimism on the internet all day echoed and endorsed and sustained by adults in the real world. Well, and that, and that's been proven out. I mean, uh, I think Matt Iglesias had a long post this yeah. week showing that liberal, if you, if you divide kids into four groups, liberal girls, liberal boys, lib, uh, conservative girls, conservative boys, it's the two liberal so, uh, sides, girls and boys are more depressed than the conservatives. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've been talking about there's a, a definitely um, girls are getting the worst of this surge of depression, but liberals are by far getting a worse job of it. And that that absolutely dovetails with what when so, Charlie um, said, this it, catastrophe vision of the world. Michelle, Michelle Goldberg wrote, wrote about this, Maddie, and um, so, someone told her that that uh, liberal teenage girls actually consume more social media because Michelle Goldberg's theory was that it was basically partially what Charlie is outlining, you know, this catastrophic situation in the country that uh, teenage uh, liberal teenage girls are hearing about that that's making them depressed. But then she looked at the evidence and thought that wasn't the case. Yeah. So I, th I think that's part of it, but I think there's also a kind of um, like the, the message of, of feminism as well does breed that resentment that Michael was talking about. There's a, they're kind of like, you become very suspicious um, and uh, distrustful of men and you, and you think that, that sex is basically a game and the, and the best you can do with this game is to, is to uh, manipulate somebody else or, or, or defeat somebody else and kind of have like power. Um, uh, and, and that's a very, very cynical idea to be selling to young people. Um, and it, it can, uh, Michael and I were discussing this the other day, you know, it can end up setting them on a path that they maybe don't realize where it ends up, but it's, it's not in a, it's not in a loving marriage, put it that way. So MBD double barreled exit question to you. Congress will take some significant action in this area, like a, a ban on social media, um, until you're 16, and the second part is, regardless of that, society will find a way to, to deal with this problem and readjust out of a sense of self-preservation, if nothing else. Um, I think Congress will do something. It might not be as broad as a ban. It might be more like, you know, a more useless, like, warning label system like you would have had on video games. Um, and society won't find a way out of this because... I think another cause of this that it, we didn't discuss is um, this is one consequence of a low fertility society. We're seeing uh, children raised with fewer siblings, fewer cousins, um, fewer people bonded to them by kith kin relationships, uh, and that makes for more brittle 
children on the whole. Maddie Kearns, Congress will do something and society will figure out a better way. Uh, Congress will do something, probably limiting access in in some way. I don't know exactly how. Um, And I don't, I I think subcultures have already figured out um, how to do something about this, but I don't have really any hope whatsoever for the mainstream culture. So what, what subcultures? Well, you know, religious subcultures or cons- conservative subcultures. I think there's a, a, a general understanding, or even actually certain types of certain types of uh, women's rights or feminist uh, who are pro men. There's a there's a kind of understanding of, of this, but um, for the most part, no, things are pretty bleak. But as Michael says, there's a low fertility rate, so it will die out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie. (laughs) I don't think Congress is going to do what Josh Hawley is suggesting. I think Michael's right. I think it will slap explicit lyrics labels on the internet, and that will be entirely useless and eventually mocked. I don't think that people will fix this, but I think time will. At some point, we are going to enter a period of rapid economic growth, and confidence. And it will be impossible to convince the majority of people that everything is terrible. Or we're going to enter a terrible time. (laughs) But when you come out of the terrible time, then it's quite difficult to convince people that it's terrible when it's not anymore. That's optimism, Michael. Well, I'm not being... I, I know that sounds a little bit having it both ways, but I don't think it is. I think... There's a reason that this happens cyclically. If you yeah. look at the 50s and the early 60s, until about the time John Kennedy was shot, people were very optimistic because they'd lived through the Depression and the Second World War, and it was tough to explain to them everything is horrible because it wasn't. Then we entered into the late 60s, which were a time of great tumult, and the 70s, which was a time of stagnation and change. But the 80s and 90s perked people up again, and then 9-11 made them paranoid and you know this is how societies go and i think we are located somewhere between the late 60s and the mid 1970s right now and i think at some point that's going to change and i do think that it will be more difficult for adults to tell children that everything is awful when it's not so i agree congress will do something i think it could go beyond warning labels I, i just you know you can feel the consensus congealing as we speak on this issue, and I, I just think think there'll, there'll be a lot of momentum to to do something on a bipartisan ba- basis. And then I'm I, like Charlie, I'm going to tilt a little optimistic on the society wide question. Slightly different reason. I, I don't think it's uh, I, I'm not as um, convinced as kind of the, the pessimism o- online that's doing this. I, I think it's other other factors, but I think we 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 may have have reached kind of a, a peak um, the the peak of teenagers being uh, you know, par- parents just looking past this and finding no way to control it. And, and I, I think the, the consensus that will prompt Congress to move will also readjust some norms around this. I, I'm not you know, going to say it's going to be fantastic or, or uh, not worse still than it was 30 years ago, but I think it will get a, a little less worse than what, where we are now so that's that that puts me on the, the really optimistic pole of this this uh, uh, this discussion with that let me pause and do a plug for our webathon running as we speak 
On the website, we need a little extra help. We always have since uh, National Review started as a small little uh, magazine. Bill Buckley figured out that, uh, you know, the business model is not going to work. I'm going to need to write a letter to our subscribers every year asking them to, to help out. We, we still do that, but it's not as important as these uh, little uh, online fundraisers that we, we run that I realize can be annoying to people. But believe me, we only do them because we, we have to. We've uh, started this one on Monday. I think I haven't looked at the number. We raised over $60,000. Uh, f five days here. We have a matching grant from a very generous friend. Up uh, Every dollar up to $100,000 gets instantly doubled. So if you are of the mind to help us out a, a little bit, and every little bit, bit helps, we appreciate the $5 contribution as much as the a $5,000 contribution, this is a really good time to do it because your your money instantly gets uh, doubled. So it's really a, a counter Biden economy kind of thing. Your money is worth more at National Review or at least uh, as a donation in National Review right now. So please take advantage of this opportunity. So Michael, we have another indication that you can push a blue city too far <laughs> and get, get a backlash. We've, we've seen it a couple um, instances out in San Francisco. Now it's moved into the Midwest where Lori Lightfoot, one of the worst mayors in America, Chicago is a disaster. Uh, even if you want to argue that you know, spikes in, in murder and other crimes and other cities were, were pandemic related and, you know, uh, accorded with the trend around the rest of the country. So the authorities could, could be held responsible. That's not true of Chicago. Chicago has been off trend on crime in a, a bad way for a long time now. This is what she ran on. She was the outsider who was going to deal with this. And instead, she uh, descends into this sink of identity politics we're sort of COVID authoritarianism, and the city continued to send into chaos, and she got her richly earned reward, which was 17% of the vote in the Democratic primary this week. Yeah, I mean, it is um, a stunning fall. I mean, it's very difficult for a Chicago mayor to go out uh, without having been reelected, um, at least in history. She's the first one in, what, 40 years? Um and the the problems with in Chicago are, are even deeper than crime. Uh, there's a huge economic problem uh, in that uh, the biggest firms, the biggest American firms that were located in Chicago, which used to be considered, you know, one of our major corporate cities, ha are leaving. You know, the hedge fund Citadel, Boeing, Tyson Foods, um, you know, they are are all out of the city. The Chicago bears are out of the city as uh, Noah Rothman pointed out in a, in a really good column on uh, Lightfoot's loss. Um, you know, this has been a, a period of spectacular decline. I'm worried. It's not just, it can't be easily reversed by, um, you know, a new mayor. I mean, we've seen cities turn around with one great mayor, like the way New York turned around under Giuliani and then Bloomberg. Um, but some some American cities, you know, start out as gleaming jewels like Memphis did and then go on decline for to decline for a century or longer. Um, and I'm worried Chicago is on a very, very scary downward slope right now. Um, 
you know, who is, who is going to move to Chicago for, um, the amenities it provides over, uh, a Scottsdale or an Austin or a Nashville. Um, and Nashville has been one of the big beneficiaries of Chicago's decline. Um, I, I mean, uh, what, what, what employers are going to locate there, or is it going to be one of these cities like Pittsburgh that is basically put on, uh, a college and hospital lifeline, right? Like just put, put a research hospital and colleges and just let federal subsidized money flow into the city to keep it on life support. Once the productive industry is left, um, you know, Pittsburgh's done okay with that. Um, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a model most cities can adopt. Um, but I'm glad to see Lightfoot gone just because it, it looks like a matter of justice. Yeah, I had a friend who lived in New York City for years and then moved down to Dallas, actually a suburb of Dallas. So it's not a direct kind of city to city comparison. But he said they uh, they they called like the city manager or the some someone at the city, you know, how's trash pickup work? Oh, and by the way, we noticed the park across the street, you know, there's a, a stray plastic bag blowing around or something. <laughs> and like immediately someone came and got the bag. And then someone from the city called the next day. It's like, is everything okay? You know, is the trash pickup working for you? you know? <laughs> which you uh, would not encounter in any, any other few other places in, in the United States. So Maddie, predictably, Lori Lightfoot, who swept a victory four years ago, uh, despite being an African-American uh, woman and a, uh, I don't know if she, she bisexual or a lesbian. Um, lesbian, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, le- lesbian. Uh, all those things uh, suddenly, four years later, have been used against her, and Chicago is just uh, too intolerant to elect or re-elect someone like her by, by her accounting. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. She gave an interview to the New York Times um, where she really focused in on uh, the race of, of her opponent who eventually beat her, Paul Vallis. Um, didn't mention the fact that Paul Vallis had really fought on a tough-on-crime law-and-order campaign um, where he actually said that this whole campaign is about taking back the city. And that cle- clearly, that was the attraction, especially when you consider her record, her record on crime and just complete failure to get a grip on that. It was just persistent upticks. There was the mishandling of the rioters. Um, I think people are fed up with it. And that's the real reason. People don't really care uh, about identity politics um, and you can't just point to somebody's race and see that's evidence see they pick the white person over the over me a black person it must be because of that but you have to give more of an argument for that but of course this has become a very evergreen thing you can uh, clasp at when you lose Hillary Clinton did the same thing saying it's because I'm a woman really that, if anything, that just goes in your favor uh, these days. So, yeah, no, she she lost on crime. So, Charlie, speaking of crime, we have uh, an aborning uh, Republican legislative victory here. They, uh, uh, under the Constitution, Congress uh, runs District District of Columbia. The um, author- local authorities in D.C. passed this idiotic and just uh, astonishingly ill-timed 
um, bill to soften up various penalties for crimes when D.C. is dealing with the same sort of problems. Well, that's always dealt with, but that cities around the country have been dealing with the last couple of years. And Republicans uh, said, no, we're going to repeal this. And somewhat surprisingly, Joe Biden's like, I'm not going to veto that. I'm going to sign it. Before I get to that, can I make myself unpopular for a moment and ask whether or not the people of these cities ultimately deserve this? I hear all this talk of democracy and (laughs) the unbreakable, almost sacred connection between the will of the people and the outcomes that that will engenders. And not a great deal of talk about the total unwillingness of many majorities in the cities that we're discussing to do something about the predicament in which they find themselves. Mm -hmm. Chicago's last Republican mayor was elected in 1934. Fine, they got rid of Laurie Lightfoot. Congratulations. But they're not trying to move toward a Giuliani. They're tinkering around the edges. I, of course, don't mean this on an individual basis. I don't mean anyone deserves bad things that happen to them. I don't mean that anyone deserves a high crime rate in an unlivable city. But I am baffled by the total lack of imagination that I'm seeing among Democratic majorities, small-D Democratic majorities, in America's large cities. Mm -hmm. We seem as a a culture not to be able to fathom what might fix this, even though we know. There was a piece in The Atlantic yesterday asking, are America's cities ungovernable? Now, of course, any listener with a long memory will remember that this was precisely the question slash excuse that was offered up when Jimmy Carter was president. It couldn't possibly be that Jimmy Carter was a bad president. It must be that the United States was ungovernable. So now we're to conclude that America's cities are ungovernable. And as someone pointed out on Twitter, essentially, the conversation seems to have gone like this. Things are terrible. What have you tried? We've tried electing Democrats. Did that work? No. (laughs) Is there anything else we could try? Beats me. I'm not saying this from a partisan perspective. There are still liberal Republicans and there are conservative Democrats. And the further down you get into the country, the more that is true. Not all of America is pulled through this partisan filter that we see in Washington, D.C. But look at what they're actually arguing about in Chicago. It's whether someone who is super left of center will be in charge or someone who is a bit left of center will be in charge or if someone who is quite left of center will be in charge. And as Maddie pointed out indirectly, often the question is, will someone left of center who is black be in charge or will someone who is left of center who is white be in charge? Will someone who is left of center who is straight be in charge or will someone who is left of center who is gay be in charge? But that's not the issue here. And I don't understand why, given the way that we habitually talk about democracy, we don't assign more responsibility to the voters who have made these conscious decisions. And even in the case of New York, voters in New York decided to screw up what they had achieved. 
they recognized in the late 1980s and put into effect in the early 1990s a different course, a course that broke with the one that they had ushered in in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and that had turned New York City, which is a wonderful city, into a nightmare. And what they did worked. They then kept doing it for a while. They did it through the 90s with Rudy Giuliani. They did it in the 2000s with Michael Bloomberg. Not someone I like, but someone who was obviously strong on crime and was elected for that reason. And then they decided, for some reason, that the problem had gone away forever, that human nature had been perfected, that crime had been eradicated and banished from the city limits, and we could get in Mil de Blasio. And what happened? We know what happened. And it's the same thing that has happened in many other places as well, except this time there doesn't seem to be an appetite to actually fix it. This isn't really what you asked me, but it bothers me. I don't understand why there isn't more discussion of the fact that the people in these cities keep electing the same people, and they keep electing the same people sometimes as a proposed fix for the thing that the last guy got wrong. It's just it's yeah, so, so, so MBD, um, it's a great point, and it sort of highlights just, just how, how deep um, you know, certain cultural commitments go, because end of the day, people in the, the, these cities, they, they'd rather vote for someone who's um, you know, pro-abortion and uh, pro-affirmative action and, and has all those progressive cultural commitments, you know, and have a thousand murders in the city, that, then vote for someone who doesn't and have half as many murders in the city. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, let's be real, though. there's also the fact that Republicans often don't, you know, give up on these contests, right? Like, I mean, there, there's there's two aspects to it, right? Charlie's right, and you're right, that there is, are, you know, Chicago is a machine politics city by tradition uh, for the Democrats going, going back to the daily machine. Um, but, you know, New York was a machine politics city going back to the 19th century, too. Um, and Republicans occasionally broke through. Many of them were more liberal Republicans uh, in one way or another. I mean, Giuliani was not um, a, a pro-lifer, you know, when he ran uh, as mayor of New York. Um, but he was a high-profile prosecutor who was famous for jailing the heads of all five families of the mob that had been uh, corrupting and degrading the entire city during the 1980s, right? Like he had a hell of a resume. So it, 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 it requires some doing on the part of Republicans to break through these machines in the city. And you have to time it at the exact right time. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, you would have thought that Lightfoot is was a figure like David Dinkins was, where you know this is the last straw, um, as far as we're you know tolerating crime uh, in the city. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll see who who they actually choose in the in the final analysis and how they run how they run the city. Yeah. Also, I mean, there should be no contradiction really formally between uh, being a progressive and being really tough as nails on crime. You know, different area. I, I always go back to Eva Mos Moskowitz, who runs these wonderful charter schools in New York City. Teachers unions hate them, uh, hate, hate her and, and her schools and the, the, the Blasio's trying to, to crimp them or shut them down. But she's a New Deal liberal that just realizes like discipline and high standards are good for kids, you know? So I don't know why the same wouldn't apply to to uh, a crime policy. But Maddie, I asked a question to you. America's cities, big cities will be saved. Yes or no? Um, 
some of them, maybe. Shall I cut? Yes, absolutely. It will happen. That it hasn't happened yet baffles me, but people do not put up with this forever. And in fact, after a while, whatever commitments they might have to the progressive checklist that you described, crime becomes pre-political and trumps everything else. I'm deep. Um, on the whole, American cities will improve. Um, I think I think Philadelphia will get better. Uh, I think New York will get better uh, and improve from the de Blasio days. But uh, I'm, I would be very worried about Chicago, that Chicago is just losing uh, for reasons of climate <laughs> um, to other cities in America. And it could be on like a terrible downward fall the way Memphis went on a terrible downward fall for over a century. Yeah. So, you know, it depends on what cities we're ta- talking about, but um, we're seeing the rise of, of new cities and the, the steady decline of these um, o- older big cities. But, you know, a place like New York, it'll get a little bit better and it still has a lot going for us, um, going for it. Um, so it'll, it'll be a mixed bag. But I agree with uh, Michael, but Ch- Chicago, the state of Chicago is extremely concerning with that. Let's hit a few other things before we go. Maddie, you have been watching your uh, wedding video, and that's why you're uh, absent from this podcast for a while. You went and got married uh, definitively, crushing all hopes to our (laughs) our gentlemen listeners. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, we got our wedding video a couple of days ago and uh, made an evening of it. So we watched the, the highlights reel, which we were super happy with, and then the the full full length mass, um, which was long. <laughs> it was like an hour and 45 minutes. Um, there was a lot of music. That's part of the way. But it was really, it was really great because I think it really does go by so fast. So it's, it's amazing to sort of have that. Uh, memorialized and be able to just revisit it and yeah. see things you missed. I forgot to give you my my wedding advice. So is give to, to people, which is to write down everything immediately, like the uh, you know the next the next morning, every memory, because you'll there's so much happens and you'll forget so so quickly. I don't know whether anyone ever, ever takes me up on this, but so, someone else told me this and and I did it. I haven't looked back <laughs> at the list, but I will. Oh well, Rich, will. you should you should have told me that. See, so you're telling me it now, and I'm like, I wish it did that. See, I know. Well, <laughs> well, do it now. Do it now. It's, it's still, it's I'll still, still retain really some have, things. Have yeah. So MBD fighting with the Pope. Yeah, I'm fighting. Uh, yeah, my light item is fighting with the Pope. Um, as I, some NR readers may uh, have noticed, in the last 18 months, the Pope has taken a real um, stand against the traditional Latin Mass, and um, the screws are finally being turned on my local bishop to destroy our community, which has been built up around the Latin Mass for the last 17 years, um, and. Uh, it's a light item in the sense of um, getting together with other uh, moms and dads in the parish to uh, start a battle plan <laughs> um, and 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 kind of figure out uh, a way around this problem uh, has been immensely like consoling and comforting. Um, but yeah, so we're uh, we're we're on a mission to 
uh, to save our, our little great. parish from destruction. It's a great MBD. We're, we're finally, you know, one of our uh, our starkest disagreements is theological. So we're finally united in our hostility to popes. This is this <laughs> oh is no, I mean, I don't, I don't think you could equal me. I mean, I, that's the thing. It's like Protestants. I mean, Protestants gave up on hating the Pope, really, right? Like that's that's ultimately what they did. Uh, we're stuck. We're stuck with these bastards, and. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, it's been it's been fun. I'm not going to name the parish because I, I seriously worry about spies um, <laughs> uh, at this point. But yeah, we're in we're in the fight, and hopefully, we convince our awesome. bishop, bishop to do All the right. right thing. Well, good good luck. So, Charlie, you 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 finally have acquired a key piece of self awareness, which is that you're tall. Yeah, I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous. And judging by your reaction earlier, Rich, you probably think this is a humble brag, but it's genuinely not. I have just realized that I'm tall. I knew that I was tall scientifically because I have been measured and I have it on my driver's license. And Science has established. Scientists say. Right. This was a New York Times story. But scientists say. The scientists are right about this. The experts are right about this. Those people Trust who can the science. Use use a measuring tape, but I'm tall. I didn't conceive of myself as a tall person, even though I suppose I am. And I was at this event and Jeb Bush was there and he's tall too. And I looked at him and I said, wow, he's tall. And the person next to me said, yeah, but you're taller than him. And I said, no. And I looked it up and I am. And then my wife and I were watching Seinfeld last night and Kramer did the coming into Jerry Seinfeld's apartment thing that he does. And I said, wow, he's tall. And then she said, well, you're taller than him. And I said, okay, am I? And I looked it up, and I am taller than him. And I've just realized that I'm tall. And what I mean by this is not that I didn't know I was tall, because I could obviously take things off high shelves that people who are shorter than me can't, but that I didn't realize that that's what I looked like. Does that make any sense? That that that's how Sort of. Sort of. Much taller than other people of different heights, I was. And I say, I think this is because one of my best friends. It's your identity, it's your truth. (laughs) One of my friends here is six foot five, and I see him all the time. And so I'm wondering whether it's partly that, that relative to him, I'm short. And so I don't think of myself as being tall relative to most people because he is. So, um, I have been eating instant mashed potatoes. I'm always a lookout for, for a quick, quick food you can make. And I remember these, uh, when, when my dad would make us dinner and didn't necessarily want to take much time to do it. And he'd make these instant mashed potatoes from a box and they were horrible. Like the flakes would never like entirely dissolve and they had a weird taste. Uh, but now there's this, this brand of instant mashed potatoes. And I was kind of skeptical when I went to the supermarket, I couldn't find instant mashed potatoes at first. And I asked, and I kind of thought, Maybe they don't exist anymore, but there's this brand called Idahoan. Um, I, I get the ones in a little bag. They're kind of they're little little grains, and you just just heat up some water. I do it in a microwave, throw it in, and they're so good. And um, I, I drench them in butter. I did a, a Twitter post on this, uh, sort of self mocking. You hear my instant mashed potatoes with a pat of butter, and they're just pools of golden butter. You know, uh, covering the the entire. Um, uh, plate, and um, I, I think they're great. So if you want want a quick a quick lunch, takes literally like two minutes. Uh, instant mashed potatoes. I recommend them. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Dan McLaughlin's piece. How old is Joe Biden? 
Um, oh this, yeah, this seems like it should be a one sentence, amazing, piece, a one sentence piece. But uh, the facts that Dan just brings about in this, like Biden was six years old when six Union veterans of the Civil War met in Indianapolis <laughs> for the last Grand Army of the Republic convention. He was a teenager when the last veteran of the Civil War died. I mean, these, it's actually kind of ast- like astonishing to think of, you know, how Biden's life, uh, you know, overlaps with William Randolph Hearst's or Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, You get, get, get some long, long lives. And it's amazing how, you know, you, you you can go get far back uh, really, really quickly. Yeah. And um, you know, he's, you know, to take us from the last civil war veteran who died to whatever Lady Gaga did last week. I mean, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. he's astonishingly old. (laughs) Mm hmm. Yeah, no, that was a really notable piece. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Michael's piece on uh, neglect at the border leading to um, children uh, doing jobs they shouldn't be doing and just generally having a very poor standard of life in the US uh, in sweatshops and, and elsewhere. It's Actually, I was just thinking, based on our previous discussion, this is sort of the paradox, is that um, if you'd asked a Victorian chimney sweep uh, whether they were struggling with their mental health or feeling sad or whatever. I think they've been confused by the question. It is a strange thing that that we, we're talking about teenagers having these terrible mental health problems um, and yet they are in comparative safety and luxury. Um, but the there's also lots of ways in which uh, children could be uh, not doing well and Michael rightly points out this one. So recommend the piece. Yeah, that was going to be my pick as, as well and um, Michael just gets on a key point here. I was struck by that piece, which is horrifying in so many respects in the New York Times. Um, the, the expectation really was that you'd have this flood of minors into the United States, and then HHS would carefully monitor each one to, you know, to make sure they're, they're safe and not being exploited. And yes, ideally, that's what you'd want to happen, but it's not going to happen. It's beyond the capacity of any government agency, which is why you want to stop the flow at the, at the border in the first place. But Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is Jeff Blehar's coverage of the Chicago mayor's race, which alternates between being informed and desperate. I think Jeff has to live through this in a way that we don't, and yet he's kept his sense of humor throughout. But things aren't good there. And he'll tell you if you ask him, things aren't good there. This stuff really matters, and I admire the sprezzatura that he's maintained in his writing. So I, I I do not have a uh, alternate pick to a- MBD. So I'm just going to double down on what Maddie said, and that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count of this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to the Bonson Group, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time. <laughs>